0: Landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your hosts, Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harrison, will bring you the other side of the story.
1: Imagine if 50% of Elon Musk's SpaceX rockets failed. You can be sure his company would never get another contract to launch payloads into space. Or how about if 50% of a construction company's bridges collapsed? Might they find themselves locked up in court for years with massive lawsuits from the families of people who perished on their bridges? Of course, you can't have a 50% failure rate in virtually any endeavor and expect to succeed. Yet there is one field where a 50% failure rate is the norm. And strangely, most governments and media still trust specialists in that field to be publishing things that are trustworthy. The particular field we're talking about is scientific research. That's pretty amazing. We look on that as being the gold standard of knowledge in our society. But as we're gonna hear in today's program, a huge fraction of scientific research that's published in leading journals is later proven to be wrong. To talk more about this, namely the replication crisis, I'm gonna be interviewing Dr. Peter Ridd from Australia. He's a geophysicist with over 100 publications and 35 years experience working on the Great Barrier Reef. He works on the physical oceanography of the reef and also developed a wide range of optical and electronic instruments for measuring environmental conditions near the corals and other ecosystems. Dr. Ridd was head of physics at James Cook University for over a decade before being fired in 2018 for questioning the quality assurance systems used by reef science institutions. We're going to hear more about that. He has authored the book Reef Heresy with a question mark, which looks at the threats to the Great Barrier Reef and discusses the wider problem of abysmal quality assurance systems used in many fields of research. Particularly relevant to our program today about the replication crisis is Dr. Ridd's description in the book of why science institutions are failing us, the Great Barrier Reef being just one example of the kind of research that, whoa, maybe we have to question quite a lot of it. So welcome to the show, Peter.
2: Thanks very much. Yeah. Now, you've
1: written more and more published research and science journals cannot be duplicated were a scientist to try to do so. And that means something must be wrong. Could you explain that to us?
2: Well, it's a thing called the replication crisis. And essentially, if if a bit of science, a bit of research is, um, you know, to be trusted, you would hope that many, many scientists would ultimately be able to do that work and get more or less the same answer. It's called replication uh, and it turns out that about 50 percent of the peer reviewed literature, the stuff in the science journals, the stuff that you hear on the radio you know, every week from some scientist somewhere turns out to be wrong. Right. So huh. it's a staggering um, statistic. And uh, and this is well accepted. You know, the uh, Lancet Journal, probably the most prestigious medical journal in the world, has written major articles about it. The Science Magazine and Nature have all done it. There's a thing called the reproducibility projects. This has been going on for 15 years, at least this acknowledgement we got a problem. And they find that, for example, in cancer research, when they try to reproduce really important cancer research, they might be able to reproduce only a third of it or a quarter of it, sometimes only 20% of it. In psychology, it's even worse. <laughs> in some areas, you know, it's probably up around 90% is not reproducible. Uh, And I just keep on saying, what other profession is so unreliable that, you know, they don't even get half right? And I'm a scientist, so this is a bit of sort of a shame.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, it's funny, our governments always talk about the scientists say, you know, researchers agree, and and they do this as if it's the gold standard, as if it's like you're designing a bridge, and all the engineers know that bridge is going to stand up. But I mean, if you design bridges with a fifty percent failure rate, <laughs> you wouldn't stay in business
2: long. Exactly, and the thing is, of course, that the uh, in engineering you have proper quality assurance systems, so you know, and you have proper engineering standards uh, in aeronautics, in so many things. I mean, my my daughter works at a milk dairy she's the quality assurance person at the dairy and they have very very you know stringent systems that they go through to make sure that the milk comes out that doesn't poison or infect somebody. Now, it turns out in science, we just don't have a lot of those systems in the the peer review system. So peer review, uh, a lot of the the scientific organisations will say it is the gold standard. They actually use the term gold standard is peer review. But peer review is just a quick check by another couple of scientists that may only last a few hours. It's mm-hmm. not what they think it is that you know maybe a dozen scientists redo the experiments and they give it a big tick at the end. So essentially, peer review is a complete rubbish quality assurance system and we shouldn't be at all surprised with all the other um, problems that we've got you know with scientists trying to publish too many, too much stuff too quickly to get promotions and all the rest of it we shouldn't be at all surprised that we have such a high failure rate with this uh, peer-reviewed I won't call it science because it's actually not science uh, it's not science until it's passed the replication tests and it's been proven really
1: yeah. So how would a typical scientist handle a peer review job? You know, he's asked to peer review a paper and it comes into his email basket. Like what would be the sort of time involved and, and what would they do?
2: Well, the first thing you do, I mean, I've done hundreds of these. Right. And the first thing you do is you you have a think about it and say, am I going to do this? And usually you say yes, because it's sort of like your your obligation as a scientist. And it might be an, an editor that you might want to suck up to a little bit so that you can get your paper published. And so you say yes, and you've got a month to do it. And you go about a month, and, and suddenly they're starting to send you things. You promised to do this in a month, you still haven't done it. And, you know, this is this is not your most important thing. Peer-reviewing somebody else's work is not your most important thing. You've got too many other things on So you you delay them for another couple of weeks. And finally, you get round to it, right, because they're really on to it. This is very typical, by the way. Mm -hmm. And so then you read this thing and you read it as quickly as you can because you've got so many other things on. Remember, you're not being paid for this. You're doing this gratis. uh, And you read it. It looks all right. You haven't found any big mistakes or maybe you have. And you, you write a report. And I think the average I would be surprised if most people spent a day on a peer review. I think it's down at more than the actual uh, analysis is probably just a few hours writing up the report, uh, you know, another few hours and that's it. So, and this is the gold standard. It's a joke, right? Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why we get such a high failure rate because it then goes out into the literature. And then importantly, there is almost no funding to reproduce. So you can get funding to do new work, but you try getting funding to do replication studies. It's actually a very difficult thing to do.
1: Mm-hmm. So if you, for example, got a paper uh, concerning the Great Barrier Reef, very few scientists would say to the, pub- to the author of the paper, I want to see your original data because this doesn't seem to match with what I think. Like, do you, do you actually dig into the original data very often?
2: You can if you want to. But remember, peer review is Free. Right. So you're doing this for nothing and you get what you pay for. Right. Now, mm-hmm. some some peer reviewers and I have d- done this, but I'll, I'll completely admit that I usually don't. They will dig into the data and they'll really go through it and they, they could spend days on it. But generally, they won't. Why should they? It's you know, it's mm-hmm. um you're not being paid for it. So no, almost never is there a, a major statistical reanalysis done and never, never, never is the experiments redone. You can't do that. I mean, that will cost you, could cost you a few million dollars in, in some cases. Yeah. So you just essentially don't have a quality assurance system. My definition of science, and people can argue it with this, is that you use logic and evidence in the presence of a quality assurance system right that's uh, people can argue with that and what we often we, we people try to use logic and they use evidence but the problem is we don't have a proper quality assurance system to make sure that, that always works not in not in many areas of science we do have it in engineering we do have it in many areas of medicine though in fact much, some of the worst cases actually come from medicine but in the environmental sciences where i work There's essentially zero quality assurance, and you can get away with scandalous stuff, and it will, it will live there in the literature forever. It's never corrected.
1: So there's no actual repercussions, then serious repercussions of finding out five years later it was all wrong.
2: (laughs) Well, this is one of the things you know. If you're your bridge engineer, the bridge collapses in five years' time, he's got a he's got a bit of a problem on his hands now, and people aren't going to want him to design another bridge, right? Yeah. and yet with replication there is almost no repercussions at all if your work turns out to be wrong firstly it probably won't ever be shown to be wrong because nobody's doing the replication test if eventually people start to realize that must have been wrong there's no big black mark against your name so you just go on and you know even in in areas where you've had institutions where it wasn't just shoddy work, but there was actually genuine fraud involved. And, you know, there's almost no <laughs> repercussion for the institution in
1: mm-hmm. that
2: case. Uh, so yeah, one of the major problems is that getting stuff wrong doesn't incur a major reputational damage to the science scientist or the institution. Now, I'm not suggesting that we need to bring that in. I think that if you if you look at the way that the aircraft industry, the maintenance industry and for pilots, look at people making mistakes, they actually don't want to string you up when you make a mistake because they want you to report your mistakes. Mm,
1: yeah, good point. So
2: if a pilot makes a mistake and they want them, the pilot at the end of it to come out and say, I did this, I'm not going to cover it up, and say, okay, that's fine. Right? So you don't want people to do that, but you do want to encourage them to report it. And I think one of the things that should come out is that, when a scientist like myself knows that a paper they wrote 20 years ago has got some error in it, it may not be the whole thing, but you should have some place that you can go to where you say, this paper, this was in error, this is how it should be corrected. And that should be encouraged that to mm-hmm. do it. There's nothing like that exists, except we've actually started a site with an ex-PhD student of mine called Wiki Letters, where we're trying oh. to encourage people to do that.
1: Yeah, for sure. Now... What do you think should be done? Like when they give a contract to somebody or a research grant to somebody to study some aspect of the Great Barrier Reef, should they have a secondary scientist doing the same thing so that they have some sort of thing to compare?
2: Not not always. I I break science into three broad categories the first is you know there's sort of the interesting science why does a why is a blue mountain butterfly blue right who cares if it's wrong you might might get the wrong answer but you know it's not good that you get it wrong but it doesn't matter then there's science that will be used by industry And industry will almost always check that. If they don't, they'll go broke. Guaranteed, eventually, (laughs) you've got to check it, right? And then there's science that's used by governments, maybe in health, maybe in environment, maybe in education, all these other things. If that bit of science, in inverted commas, is going to be used in legislation or regulation, Mm -hmm. then that needs to have replication tests done on it. The Mm -hmm. other thing is that the major science funding bodies need to set aside... Ten percent of their funding, so these are going to be done on replication. So, right. for example, there's famous uh, scandal with Alzheimer's research, where a uh, very famous paper on these beta amylo- beta amyloids turned out to be wrong, but it really was only discovered fifteen years later. But all these other scientists followed this original paper down the rat hole, <laughs> and oh, wow. it was all wrong. So, God knows how many billions of dollars have been wasted in that case. So. The NSF and, you know, the other uh, national science uh, funding organisations say, well, all right, we've got this really groundbreaking bit of research, which we're following. Let's spend some money to try to replicate that. You know, you should put aside 10% of your funding. At the moment in Australia, by the way, it's impossible to get replication studies funded. It's against the funding rules to do that. And yet replication is fundamental to the whole scientific endeavor it's part of the quality assurance process you know Einstein said this well let's just check the maths right let's do the experiment looking at an eclipse to see whether the light bends around the sun or whatever he did yeah around the sun and um yeah it worked right so that's the sort of thing you've got to do but it doesn't happen and it certainly especially doesn't happen in the environmental sciences
1: yeah. It's interesting you mentioned Einstein. He said when they were, he was presented with this document, 100 scientists who disagree with Albert Einstein, and he said, why 100? One would be enough, you know, yes. if, if I was wrong, <laughs> you know. And well, that's- well, that's right.
2: Exactly. So w- one of the things you end up getting, this is one of, this is, by the way, one of the consequences of peer review that you end up with groupthink forming. Now, that 100 scientists was, was, if my memory serves me right, was uh, essentially there was a lot of Nazis against Einstein. But yeah. peer review essentially forces groupthink. So if you come out with uh, something that's a little bit out there, like Einstein did, and all the other scientists don't like that, you actually have to send your paper to them. They're the peer reviewers to, to tick it or cross it, essentially to get into the journal. Of course, when Einstein was around, peer review wasn't really a thing. Okay, there was so you know the editor looked at this and pretty well written, it went in. So it really wasn't so much of a problem then. But peer review makes group think dissenters like myself and there's a lot of others have been forced out of science because the peer review systems forces the group think.
1: Mm-hmm. Now that actually raises the other question concerning what happened with you at James Cook. I mean. Was it partly because of your questioning in an un, sort of inconvenient way? Did that, is that one of the things that led to your problems there?
2: <laughs> it certainly did. So I was essentially pointing out mass, massive inconsistencies. Like, so for example, there was a coral reef near the coast, and they were saying there was no coral on it. And this was caused by the farmers, all the mud coming out of the farms, smothering the reef. And this was all down the 2,000 kilometre length of the reef, all the inshore reefs were being damaged by this. And I, I said, well, you've, you've given this example of Stone Island Reef. You said there's no coral. I've sent my guys down, was I had a big um, you know, lab with a lot of workers in there. And they took these beautiful pictures of the reef. and said, you got it wrong. And I was asking what quality assurance systems were you using that you said there was no coral on this reef when clearly there was. So I don't care that you got it wrong. What I care about is what quality assurance systems were you using? Now, of course, that really the proverbial hit the fan in a major way and we yeah. ended up being being fired. It was it was inevitable because we'd been I'd been stepping outside the line. Um we we were the guys who invented the instruments for measuring mud around coral instruments, right? Around coral yeah. reefs. And we'd proven without any shadow of a doubt that the effect of the farming was was zero, but we were being completely ignored by the ideologues in the scientific community.
1: Yeah. Well, actually, I find that in a lot of fields. There's a politically correct narrative, and if you want to publish outside of that narrative, I'll, I'll give an example. <clears throat> a friend of mine, he's passed away now, but I shouldn't use his name because, believe it or not, he had death threats against him and his family for publishing things that were not politically correct. But he found that the North Atlantic Ocean was cooling. And he wrote a paper on this and his director just sort of never got around to getting back to him. And every time he saw the director, the director would walk the other way until finally he cornered him in the washroom. And he said, well, have you seen my paper? What do you think? Can we submit it to the journal? Because you work for the government. And he said, well, you've had lots of papers published, right? He said, yes. Well, you realize that the minister said the opposite the, the other day to what you found. He said, yes, but that's what I found. He said, well, uh, you've had lots of, of course I did put it forward. And you know, it's (laughs) interesting because um, it reminded me of what my sister told me when she worked for a department in the government, when she was given the job to find research that supported what the government said. And she came back and told them, well, I can't find any research that supports what they said. And they said, well, look harder. (laughs) And she called me up and she said, this isn't, uh, evidence-based decision-making. This is decision-based evidence-making. And, <laughs> and I thought, yeah, of course, that sounds like something out of, you know, Yes Minister, that Brit- British sitcom, you know, where you go yeah. find the evidence because the minister said X. And so uh, one of the questions I wonder then is, do the scientists, do they really care in general that so much of the research is wrong?
2: Well, that's the scandalous thing. No, they don't, right? That is the interesting thing that uh, I mean, they care a bit. They'd rather it was right. And there's some that care a lot and have really staked their, you know, damaged their career. Like we, We've had a, a case at James Cook University from which I was fired. This was actually after I was fired for saying there's a, pro- a problem with quality assurance. That uh, So all this work had come out saying that karma dioxide was damaging the uh, ability of fish to to smell predators, and they kept on getting eaten, right? It was crazy stuff. And there was a very interesting group of biologists that got very um, very angry by this because they could see it was wrong. And they published these repli- a replication study which found that everything was wrong, the whole thing was wrong. There was no quality assurance at, at my university at all, essentially. But they damaged their standing within the biological community because people don't like whistleblowers. They mm. don't like people damaging the reputation of, a, of an institution going against the narrative because they were saying all this work saying carbon dioxide was a huge problem was actually totally wrong. So the fact that this was true was, you know, who cares about that? And I've had, I remember at a at a particular meeting of scientists, there would have been 50 there. I was saying all this mud coming off farms isn't killing the reef, but clearly we want to reduce the amount of mud coming off farms because mud coming off farms is just a bad thing. And I had this question from a very senior person saying, well, if you agree that we should reduce mud coming off farms, does it matter if we sort of, you know, sex it up a little bit and say it's damaging the reef because it's all for a good cause? And yeah, I, I was just, I was staggered yeah. um, that somebody could not just say that, but say that in front of a, an audience of 50 people. And there wasn't a riot. You know, I said, well, look, we're here to tell the truth. That is what science is about. We're mm-hmm. trying to get to the truth. It's not very easy on many occasions, but unfortunately, um, to it seems that there's I don't know twenty or thirty percent of the people who that really matters, and you just you can't go against what you know is wrong. But many people they just shrug their shoulders and say, "Well, the world's just like that, and mm-hmm. there's nothing I can do about it."
1: Yeah, the trouble is, as you pointed out, we're basing international policies on a lot of these documents that may actually be totally wrong. And, and, you know, it brings up another question. Do you think the public's trust in the credibility of science is eroding? And maybe that's a good thing until they fix this problem.
2: It's undoubtedly a good thing, because people should, people should trust science. No doubt about that. But the question is, how do you recognize whether it's science? What's coming out of many of the scientific institutions is often not science. So we should not trust scientific institutions. We should not trust individual scientists. But once we've decided, no, that one, there's there's been evidence, there's been logic, there's been a, a proper quality assurance down on it. You know, maybe it is wrong. You know, things can always go wrong. The bridge can fall down, even with the best of things. But I'm going to believe that because it's gone through those systems. That is not happening in the institutions, so people should not believe them. And I, I do believe that there is a growing distrust, and it's it's correct. Um, I think the COVID thing has damaged trust even more, quite legitimately. Uh, more and more people are looking at things in medicine. You know, I mean, is there any substance in the world that doesn't cause cancer? <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, you've got to to eat three kilograms of of this substance a day and it will cause cancer. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, I mean, I remember listening on the BBC program where uh, a famous – it was the guy Cox, um, who's a famous physicist over there, was bemoaning the fact that when people were shown a bit of scientific um, evidence showing that eating a lot of something or other caused cancer, people mostly didn't believe it. And this was – And he was very upset about this. Why are people not believing the science? Well, we just had this thing where, um, at that stage, where you remember the food triangle. We were told you've got to eat lots of carbohydrates and almost no meat. And now this is more or less discredited. This had just been discredited then. And why should I now believe that eating too much salami causes a lot of cancer? I mean, maybe it does. (laughs) But we just had this massive thing that discredited. So now the situation is that most people don't really believe a lot of that stuff with regards to nutrition. And I think that's also happening with COVID too.
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, so that's interesting. It's not just that the credibility of in the public eye, public eye is reducing, but that it's a good thing. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's what I think. So, I mean, when the government gets a research study and they want to actually use it for policy that's going to cost billions of dollars, Surely they should go back and say to the scientists, are you really sure this is right? We want a confirmation of this. We want it checked into more thoroughly instead of just saying, yeah, this supports our politically correct point of view. So we're going to charge ahead with this. I mean, surely the the, you know, the politicians who are supposed to be representing their constituents should be getting back to the scientists and say, I want to know totally that this is for real before we dedicate money for the the so-called fix.
2: Exactly. But what you said is what happens is that, oh, this goes along with our ideological view. So we're going to take it. We know that, especially in the environmental sciences, almost everybody is on the, not just on the left of center, but on the extreme left. They're extreme lefts. Uh, So what needs to happen is that when a, a center or center right government gets into power, they should then seek out scientists and fund them to do the replication studies. I initially thought the way to do this is to have an independent body that does replication studies. And that just won't work because that independent (laughs) body will get hijacked by the same forces that's hijacked every other institution almost in the world. So the only way you can do that is have this so that the politicians themselves, the Minister of Agriculture in my case, or the Minister of Health in the covid we'll be able to say, okay, we're really worried that some of the stuff that's going on is not right. I'd like to get some scientists who can just be a devil's advocate. They're good scientists, devil's advocate. We're not interested in what's right. We're just interested in what's wrong, right? We can then just presume everything else is right to do a good replication study. That's the way it's going to have to be done. You're going to need some politicians with serious cojones uh, to be able to do that. But it's the, it's, it's easier to do. You know, in the case of the Great Barrier Reef where I were, it would be very easy to hire a bunch of scientists and then you would force the people in the establishment scientists to confront these arguments. Because at the moment what they can do is they can say, well, there's only one Peter Ridd, I can ignore him, right? Or there's only one Peter McCulloch, I can ignore him in COVID. Uh, but if you have a government-resourced scientific group that's come down and said everything you've done is wrong or some part of it is wrong, then they are now forced to confront that contradictory evidence. At the moment, they can just ignore the contradictory evidence. And the mainstream media will just go along with that.
1: Mm-hmm, exactly. Well, Peter, a recent paper by Ionides, the medical statistician, he's, he's really upset the science community by explaining that most conclusions are wrong. Can you talk about this paper and its impact?
2: Well, the paper was called, I think, uh, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. And it was in 2005. And I think this really kicked off this replication crisis scandal. And when you consider we're 17 years down the track now and this has not been solved and institutions still burying themselves in the sand. But, yeah, he proved that, especially in the biomedical area where they use a lot of statistics, that a huge amount of stuff can end up being wrong. Uh, So, for example, if you... um, If you measure 20 or 30 things about a person, their blood pressure, their age, the length of their thigh, some sort of chemical that the liver produces, you know, just a lot, a lot of things. And then you do a correlation. If you didn't measure 20 things and you correlate this with that, there's going to be a couple hundred things you can correlate. And just by chance, uh, some of those are going to have a correlation at a, you know, better than a 5%, you know, probability that they're wrong worse than a 5%, probability, they're wrong. And so you end up with these spurious correlations that length of somebody's thigh um, is, correlates with whether or not they get pancreatic cancer or something completely ridiculous, yeah. right? So he was looking into some of these sorts of things. And, um, and yes, it was, was a major thing. And he's, of course, been working in a major way on trying to improve, especially in the biomedical area, by doing pre-registrations of, of um, of uh experiments so before you do the experiment you actually register it before you you do it and then publish it to try to stop some of these things going on he's really the prime mover uh of the replication crisis and trying to get things done and he's he's done a lot of stuff on covid by the way he's written some very interesting stuff on covid he's a really really free spirit that guy yeah yeah
1: we'll have to talk more about that after the break So I've been interviewing Dr. Peter Ridd, a geophysicist with over 100 publications and 35 years experience working on the Great Barrier Reef. We'll be right back to talk about the replication crisis, which bridges all science. It's really pretty amazing. So stay tuned.
0: While many things we hear are lies, we know one thing is true. Viruses exist and people get sick. Look, there's no guaranteed way to keep from getting sick, but there is a way to reduce your chances. KofixRx, the original povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray that you hear Dr. McCullough talking about, provides an additional invisible layer of protection from colds, flu, coronaviruses, and more. Click the banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use promo code OUTLOUD For 20% off, stay protected with Cofix Rx. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow Visit Genesisfolger.com forward slash outloud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a fifteen percent discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OutLoud. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next.
1: For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe. Yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a Made in America climate plan. A plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure. A plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com. So I'm back with Dr. Peter Ridd talking about the replication crisis. We were talking about a research paper and you mentioned statistics. Can you give an example of what sort of statistics are sometimes not used properly when we're looking at scientific results?
2: Uh, well one of the examples is this thing called the p value in statistics so a lot of a lot of biomedical stuff it's just statistics you measure a whole lot of stuff and you look for correlations and things and the p value tells you what chance um, a particular correlation is likely to be you know valid so if it's a p of 0.05 it, there's you know about a 5% chance that it could be wrong right that there isn't actually it's just a spurious correlation essentially and as I mentioned before, if you measure enough things, you can get correlations between all sorts of stuff. And that's one of the major reasons. But one of the things that ionadini uh, has really highlighted is that most of the scientists have a pretty poor grasp on statistics. Mm-hmm. and uh, And it's often used in a wrong way. If we look at the physics, I mean, there's been some, Um, fairly bad things that's happened in physics, though they've pretty well fixed it up. If you look at, say, the the large Hadron Collider and the the discovery of the Higgs boson, the statistics on that would mean that there's a probability of about one in three million that they got that wrong, whereas in a lot of biomedical science, there's a 5% chance that it could be wrong. And if you do enough measurements, and by the way, if you do measurements and it's a really strange correlation, like, as I said, the length of somebody's thigh causes you pancreatic cancer that's a really interesting um, (laughs) result much more likely to get published than the length of your thigh doesn't correlate with pancreatic cancer right so you end up with these very interesting improbable statistics being more likely to be published because they're interesting right especially Mm -hmm. in the high profile journals so you get these really quite strange things happening. But, but actually, it's, it, it all makes total sense because there is no proper quality assurance done on most of these things.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting. The science wars were uh, publicized in the late 1990s between the physical sciences and the social sciences. And what the physical scientists were saying, and I don't think it's true, but what they were saying is that social science is all this flaky stuff that, you know, is totally qualitative, but our science is the truth, you know. The science that what we're finding is the truth about nature. And one of the physical scientists, I'm not sure if he's a physicist, but I think so. He actually published or actually wrote a paper for a social science journal that was absolute nonsense. But he used big words and and complicated reasoning and everything else. And he submitted it as if it was real. And the social science journal published it. And then he stood back and said, you realize that whole thing is a hoax. I just was testing to see if you had proper peer review. And he came back. And and of course, they hated him forever after that. But he was using that as a weapon to try to show that unlike social science, hard science was definite. It was solid. It was real. And there was no subjectivity involved. But what we're hearing now is that there's obviously subjectivity involved in all science.
2: Yeah, that, I mean, uh, there is a degree of subjectivity. It's much, much less in physics. And I, and I look, I'm a physicist, so I'm, I suffer from what is called physics arrogance. I admit it, yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't affect physics as badly as others, as other areas. One of the reasons it's not just that we, you know, say with a lot of stuff, the statistical tests are, are far more robust because we can take far more measurements and the rest of it. But it's also because everything is in physics is based on. You know, fundamental laws, whether it's the laws of electromagnetic radiation, Maxwell's equations, you know, everything's sort of grounded in that. Whereas there are no these sort of grand universal theories in the social sciences or even in the environmental sciences. But i got to say, um, us physicists are responsible for some of the worst cases of very bad science, because the, the climate models that are used to predict the end of the world. Uh, which in my view are interesting, but they're not useful in terms of their ability to, um, I think that weather models, which are really just uh, short-term climate models are brilliant, but those are actually physics. They're done by physicists. They're just full of physics equations and maths, all right? So, And so we do have, in that case, physicists who are, stretching the credibility of their predictions and making more of them than they should. I mean, one of the things we learn in physics is you've got to put an error bar on something. uh, And the error bars in, in those big climate models are huge and they're not actually publicizing that at all. And there are other examples I can give in physics where I think that physicists have been misbehaving pretty badly and wasting a lot of money.
1: So for our audience, if you talk about an error bar, does that mean, for example, that you would say, well, I forecast the temperature in 2100 will be four degrees warmer than today, but it might be 10 or it could be two. Uh, I mean, is that the kind of thing you're talking about where it could be a lot more or less than what they're actually saying?
2: Well, that's exactly right. You have to put every measurement must have an uncertainty. This is you know, basic physics that. And so that, you know, between 2 and 10 degrees, well, that's sort of not very useful uh, if, if that is the case. And what I think is the – I mean, they do t- try to put error bars on the output. They're still good enough as they do. But I don't think that they've actually tested the models and adjusted all the parameters because, you know, in a, a given um, climate model, there might be a 100 different parameters which you can tweak uh, and, and change to get a, a different output by 2100, Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they actually do that in a way that they give the full range of predictions. Now, mm-hmm. if you look at, say, um, if you want to send a satellite to Pluto, right, there is essentially one unconstrained parameter that you need to be able to, to predict where the Pluto is going to be and where your satellite's going to be, and that's the universal gravitational constant, which we know to six or seven decimal places, and that's pretty much it, Okay. And so we can do that. We can do that. We can predict into the future and get that very accurate. But with the climate models, firstly, we don't know most of the physics very well. We don't know the cloud physics. We don't know the water vapor physics. There's lots of stuff which we do know pretty well, but some of the basic stuff we don't know. So we don't know the fundamental equations. And we've got 100 or so unconstrained parameters. You can get a lot of different results out of that. And they are underestimating the size of their error bar in those climate models and that is a very very wicked thing to do it's the Mm -hmm. most wicked thing you can do as a physicist is to underestimate the size of your uncertainty
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so what they're essentially saying in some cases is well my results show that the future is going to be anything from catastrophic to not noticeable
2: (laughs) Well, well that would be fine right that would be fine if they did that right if that is the true size of the error bar. And so what you're actually saying is that, well, this prediction has no use for it. And that's fine. By the way, you know, that there's nothing wrong with that. Now a government has to then look at that and say, well, you know we now going to we've got a huge uncertainty here, which I think is just true. We just don't know what's going to happen, whether by natural or unnatural or, or man made. We just don't know what the climate is going to do. So you want to do things to be able to so that you can adapt to whatever's going to happen. I mean, we could have a, a volcano go off the size of the. Tamborora one in what was it 1815 I might have those dates wrong right which could cause a one or two degree cooling overnight well not quite overnight but you know very quickly massive effect on food agricultural production we are not equipped to deal with that and we should be we're worried about a three degree rise over 100 years but we're not equipped to deal with something that could happen literally in a period of a few months Mm -hmm. so there are things that you can do, even if your models are essentially have no predictive ability.
1: Mm-hmm. Because a very legitimate scientific conclusion to give the politicians is we don't know. I mean, surely that is fine. And in fact, you know, as I get older, more and more fields of people ask me questions about that, I used to think I knew the answer. I now say, I don't know. And I think that's fine, isn't it?
2: Uh, it's it's completely fine, and that's what I would li- I would like to see huge quality assurance effort done on these models. Right, there's about thirty five or so of these models, but they're all run by the same sorts of people. It's noticeable that I haven't checked the recent results, but the Russian model always predicts much less than all the other models, <laughs> which yeah, is interesting, yeah. right? Why is that? I mean, that, that doesn't make sense. They may be the only one that's right. Who knows? Um, but yeah, it's totally right that we we don't know. But it's totally wrong for scientists to over-egg their confidence in their results, often for, in this case, an ideological or a political gain.
1: Yeah. Now, with the huge proliferation of science journals, do you think part of the problem is that there's more and more need for papers to publish in all these journals? So the standards for acceptance are actually lowering.
2: There's no doubt that there's some of these, what they call predatory journals who will publish any rubbish at all, right? Any complete junk they will publish. But I got to say that if you want to find a really, really bad paper, you go to the top journals. Oh, wow. You go to Science and Nature because – I mean, I've I've criticised uh, some of these in Science and Nature, which are undoubtedly wrong. I mean, there's no doubt, and some of these, the, you know, the, these really big name ones, which are found to be totally fraudulent. I could give you some examples. There'll be some links I'll I'll give you. Um, yeah. These are in Science and Nature. Now, see, the problem is if you get a bad paper in, you know, the Mongolian Journal of Marine Science.
1: Yeah. Well,
2: nobody cares, right? But yeah. if you get a really bad paper in Science or Nature of the Lancet well, now we're going to spend $20 billion uh, going down a rat hole. So that's why it's there's lots of very bad papers in the top scientific journals. In the end, they're still using rubbish QA. It might not be quite as predatory as some of these other journals, but they don't have any QA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Wow. Now, the other thing that you alluded to early on is that within the universities, there's huge pressure to publish. In fact, the acronym that I hear, or the, the saying that I hear, is "publish or perish." So, would you say that perhaps the universities should back off on this pressure and let the scientists do their work and check other work as part of their normal job, and not have quite so much pressure to publish, you know, large numbers of papers?
2: I don't think there's any doubt the publish or perish is one of the major reasons why we have the problem, because it means that stuff goes out far too quickly um, without being properly checked. But it's only part of the problem. You then need to have the research funding bodies spending money uh, to replicate stuff so that we can actually find the dodgy material. Publish or perish is definitely one of the three or four major causes of this terrible problem that we've got.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that, I I went to university and did my master's and I was starting a PhD and I wanted to focus on teaching and I was told that I could be the best teacher in the university, but if I wasn't pumping out papers fast enough, I wouldn't get tenure. So that's actually one of the reasons I didn't continue.
2: Yep. That's absolutely right. And um, now there's a place for just having, you know, top gun researchers who uh, in many cases are pretty rubbish teachers. And there's obviously a place for really good teachers uh, mm-hmm. But you're right. The really good teachers often don't get the, um, the credit they deserve. They're actually doing a much more important job because, I mean, let's be honest, a huge amount of research that comes out is not just wrong. It's pretty well irrelevant as well. <laughs> okay? yeah. But you standing in front of 100 students trying to change their, you know, uh, train their brains. There is no more important thing that a person can do. And it's one of the things which so worries me is the the desecration of our education system, that we have given our education system essentially to enemies of the state. So what do you expect to happen to our young people? They've been completely brainwashed in all sorts of ways. So we need good people to go into teaching, and that's not always happening.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I was hired as a sessional lecturer at Carleton University, and I was teaching a second year general course in earth sciences, which focused on climate change. And I gave them a lot of the other side of the story. And it was interesting because most of the students were actually fascinated. They came up to me afterwards and said, and they just finished high school maybe a year or two earlier. And I said, We never heard any of this. You know, and they were just, They were dumbfounded and they loved it. And we ended up, we were going on Carleton University TV and we actually had people watching in Vietnam and all over the world, you know, and we ended up, I think it was the four sessions that I taught, I had a total of 1500 students, you know, and then lots of people, I guess, watching just because it was fun to watch. And the kids, you know, they were really interested. And, you know, it's funny because I find that young people like to question the status quo and they like to actually <laughs> yeah. be sometimes a little politically incorrect. And, you know, I used to teach at high schools and this is just a, a side story. Um, and then I was teaching, you know, just coming in as a guest lecturer about climate and the kids loved it. The teachers were uh. The principal, though, was and in one of my actual dates that was set up for me to speak to the students. Um, the principal contacted me and he shared with me an email that he got from the school board who worked for the government. And he said that Mr. Harris is teaching stuff that is against government policy. So you are not to invite him in. And that was that all of my talks and on were canceled. So I can't speak at high schools. Now that was a few years ago. I should try again because the kids got a big kick out of it, you know, and, and that was the same thing in my course. It was, uh, it was fun to teach and the students were really enthusiastic. And as a sessional lecturer, I didn't have to worry about research so I could focus really hard, but, um, it was funny, though. Some students, they were absolutely opposed. And you'd laugh, Peter, as a former professor, um, I was at one of the final exams and a student put up their hand and I came over to answer them. And they said she said to me, should we answer this question the what the what we think is correct or what you told us? <laughs> so I just said what i told you <laughs> because of course be, you know so i mean there were skeptics in the course but it was really great fun to teach actually it was quite a
2: can, you I, know. can i just add that sorry tom uh, there's yeah. i've had very similar experiences with with young people and i'm making a whole bunch of videos on the great Reefs. Aim awesome. just at young people because my experience is if you can just get to talk to them, it's just amazing how receptive they are to the ah. the, the skeptical message about climate. And I used to have a school, the Townsville Grammar School, used to come to 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 me once a year uh, when I was obviously working at the university, and I would give them uh, a sceptics view of the the climate uh, thing. And before at the beginning, I would ask them, "Where do you stand? Are you a, you know hardcore alarmist?" Alarmist, but you know, only just or a skeptic, but only just or a hardcore skeptic sort of thing. And then I'd give my talk, which is only 20 minutes, and just give some basic, you know, Holocene climatic optimum it was yeah. hotter t- uh, 5,000 years ago. And I could bring almost everybody down by one notch. So the uh-huh. alarmist would now be, I'm still an alarmist because I want to think about this a bit more, but my word, I've, I've, inter- or at the Bowen State School, a big a school near a big coal mining port uh, here, I was invited in by the headmaster to talk at lunchtime. I think it was lunchtime, and they didn't have to come. Nobody had to come to this this thing, but I had three hundred, about half the school, turn up to this wow. thing, and they. Questions I got at the end of it were, were just gave you so much hope that yeah. although the younger generation are being brainwashed and they undoubtedly are brainwashed to some extent, they haven't lost that youthful rebelliousness that they they know, like your question, do I need to write what I have to write or do I need to write what I think? They, they're getting this from six years old. yeah. So they're not a lost cause. Don't give up on the youth.
1: Well, I should get back to that then because it, it, was, it was really encouraging. And, you know, one other thing that I think you and our listeners would like to hear is one of the absolute top rap stars in the world is called Tom McDonald. He comes from Vancouver. And I'm not a fan of rap, especially when they have a lot of swearing and stuff in it. But he's done some pretty amazing rap. He he's, he's did one rap, which I'll include actually under, the bit, under this podcast when it goes up on Monday. It was called Brainwashed. And he has one line that says, don't defund the, the police, defund the media who lied through their teeth, you know, and uh, he, he goes through and he actually basically takes apart a lot of the politically correct stuff in a very rap sort of way. And, and I was amazed to see that the number of views of that video is 13 million And not only that, he has over 10,000 comments. And these are young people getting in saying, yeah, he's right. We can't trust this. We have to look at it two, three, four times until we're sure it's right. And so, yeah, I think this is really inspirational that young people are prepared to look under the covers, look behind the the screen, because, you know, I think a lot of them feel they've been lied to on a lot of issues.
2: And they, and they know that they're stunned to get it. Look, I think, things i mean we our generation starting to get very very depressed about the way the world is going but i think it could change incredibly quickly when Mm -hmm. the youth finally get it if and when they they finally get it it will go through them like a fire right Mm -hmm. and it will be very very quick uh so don't give up hope i think it can happen and if it does it will be fast
1: yeah. Well, I'll get back to the public schools teaching then, the high schools and stuff. And in particular, I'll start with the private schools because then I don't have to worry about the government telling them, don't invite in Harris.
2: You'll have just as much trouble with some of the government schools as you will with the, the uh, state schools. Yep.
1: Oh, is that right? That's my, that's
2: so, my experience anyway.
1: Well, <laughs> we'll find out anyway. If you could probably get a few talks in, it would be fun. Now, of course, one of the questions I used to ask the students is I say, well, you know, you hear all the time about the global warming crisis how much do you think it's warm since 1880 in the so-called global average temperature, which I explained to them as kind of a meaningless statistic. But I say, how much do you think it's warm? And they'll say, oh, must be eight degrees, 10 degrees. I say, no, according to the UN, it's just over one degree. I said, now one degree in 140 years, would you notice that in your
2: lifetime?
1: And they sort of sit there, uh, no. <laughs> so yeah, no. it's fun to ask them.
2: that's right i mean i on that i say i came to north queensland which i'm in northern australia very tropical climate it's just hot very hot out there at the moment when i came to australia from england as a 10 year old we lived in a house made of corrugated iron we had no fans it was hot right nowadays i'm under a fan i don't even need an air conditioning a one degree would i rather live now one degree hotter With a fan, I can turn on the air conditioner. I have an air-conditioned car and the roof is insulated. Would I rather one degree hotter now or live then? I mean, it's just not even close. Yeah. But a little bit of technology that, you know, if we are warming, okay, a little bit of technology can accommodate that much better than changing our whole energy production system.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, why do you think the media always latch on to the climate thing and the Great Barrier Reef problems? I mean, do you think they're driven by ideology or is it money or is it a political correctness? Is it a combination of lots of things?
2: It's a lot of things. A lot of the journalists are ideologically on the left or extreme left. Um, A lot of it is, I won't say laziness because that's a little bit unfortunate that the number of people, the number of of journalists has collapsed i don't know it must be about 150th of what it was in the 1980s because of the way that newspapers have disintegrated so there's no investigative journalist almost uh, whatsoever um so it's all these things have added up that the the me the mainstream media is now completely hopeless. I've actually been blackbanned by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. Right? Oh so wow! That... They will they they talk to me about my problems with the James Cook University because we ended up in the High Court, it's the equivalent of the American Supreme Court, and we we won on the on the principle, even though we lost on on something else. But anyway, they'll talk to me about the academic freedom, freedom of speech things. But they've been told you will not talk to Peter Ridd because he doesn't hold the government line on the Great Barrier Reef, that he says oh. the Great Barrier Reef is fine, and the government says, or the Australian Institute of Marine Science says no, it's collapsing all around us, even though we've got more coral this year than we've ever had since records <laughs> began. <laughs> yeah. So this is what happens. and um and that's I guess why people are more and more listening to rappers and yeah. Tom Harris than they yeah. are to the mainstream media. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, you're a hero. They should be interviewing you because you disagree with the politically correct narrative. I mean, where is their inquisitiveness?
2: <laughs> well, this is what I say. You know, I say to them, because I, I I, have contact with some of these journalists, they say, look, I'm not expected to get free time. But, you know, I'm not a complete lunatic. I've had a very prestigious <laughs> career as a scientist, you know, and everybody agrees with that, even my scientific opposition you should at least once in a blue moon say, well, look, here's this maverick, call me what you like. Right? Yeah. And give the other side of the story. Because it's actually your duty, it's your charter, in, because the Australian Broadcasting Corporation is like the BBC it's a, or the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. It's a government-rounded thing, and it's in your charter. Yeah to represent it's not like I'm in a small minority I mean in North Queensland there is a huge percentage of people who know for a fact the Great Barrier Reef is fine because they can go out there and see it and know that it's fine right so I'm not in a small minority in North Queensland
1: Mm -hmm. yeah exactly well we have to wrap up there I have so many other questions I'd like to ask you would you come back on the show sometime in the future
2: I'd be delighted to
1: oh that's wonderful well, our guest today is being Dr. Peter Ridd, a geophysicist from Australia talking about the replication crisis which affects all science. So we encourage our listeners, please spread this interview around because we've got to get people to understand this. This is a very important topic. So thanks very much, Peter, for being on the show.
2: My pleasure.